How is everybody? Thanks. Thanks, guys. So um, all the moms in the room, um, thank you very much. You have the hardest job on planet Earth, right? And uh, so happy Mother's Day. My mom is in St. Louis, and she watches the 9 and the 11 o'clock. So I'm going to say hi to my mom She every single weekend. And um, <laughs> instead of my mom finding a church in St. Louis, she just tells everyone like in her neighborhood and everything else, to just watch me online. And so she'll tell me, she's like, hey, I got the postman watching you. And I'm like, well, are there no churches in St. Louis, mom? You know what I mean? Like, but she gets everyone to, to watch the sermon every single week and all my family and uh, up there in St. Louis and everything. So uh, yeah, if you, um, if you don't appreciate the role of mom, if you ever watch your wife give birth to children, you just step back and you're like, I've done nothing, right? Like... <laughs> Women are so much stronger than us. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating, and you really have a, a different kind of sense of appreciation for, for all the things that women go through. And um, I think we forget sometimes uh, because there's, and I'm not trying to get on a, a, a shtick here or a soapbox, but there seems to be such an absence of a strong male presence in our society. I think we forget sometimes how much has been put on moms and how much moms have had to, unfortunately, carry a lot of families and... and and um, do uh, a lot of the raising of the children and, and um, just how important of a role mothers are. So again, I say it not just because it's Mother's Day, but because I genuinely appreciate all of you who fight for your kids and fight for your marriages and, and um, hold a lot of things intact. Thank you so much. And I hope you have a great Mother's Day. If you have not called your mom today, uh, you need to, right? Right when you get out of here, you got to call your mom, tell her how much you love her and uh, make sure that she knows that she's appreciated. So all right, after all that being said, today we're going to talk about uh, an assassination plot against Paul. So, <laughs> all right, <laughs> so, <laughs> switch gears a little bit. Um, we have been in the book of Acts for quite some time now. If you're new to the church, this is what we do. We go through whole books of the Bible and um, break them down chapter by chapter, verse by verse. If you haven't been with us, we're in the fifth book of the New Testament called the book of Acts, and where we are in the story is, is interesting. We're towards the end of this book of the Bible, got a couple of chapters left, about four or five chapters left, and, and here's where we are in the story. We've been following along a guy named the Apostle Paul, right? He has been traveling around for years now. He's gone on three big missionary trips, and he has found his way back to Jerusalem, kind of the starting point, if you will. When he gets back to Jerusalem, he doesn't get a very warm welcome from the Christians there, the Jewish Christians. Um, it ends up smoothing out a little bit. But in the process of Paul trying to kind of smooth out this tension between he and the Christians in Jerusalem, he upsets the Jewish community that's not Christian in Jerusalem in a big way. This is what Paul has done in almost every part of the world that he's gone and spoken at. He's had this group of people that, that are adamantly against him. So this group of Jewish people that are adamantly against Paul start a riot in Jerusalem, right? So they are, it, it, it alludes to the fact that they almost rip Paul to shreds. They hate this man so much. The Roman officials hear about this. They get involved because they want to shut down any kind of disturbance in their city, right? Because Jerusalem was a Roman area, even though it was run by the Jews, you had the Romans over them, right? So they step in, a guy named Claudius Lysias, shuts the riot down, pulls Paul aside, 
and he's going to try to figure out why these people hate him so much. Now, the way they're going to figure out why people hate him so much is they're going to beat Paul. They're going to interrogate him, much like they beat Jesus before they crucified him. They're going to beat Paul. So as they lay Paul down, Claudius's men are about to whip Paul, and right before they hit him, Paul says, is it lawful for you to beat and, and interrogate a Roman citizen? Now, he was a Roman citizen, and they didn't know that. It was against the law to beat an uncondemned Roman citizen. So they stopped the interrogation, and this kind of threw the whole Roman, Roman uh, uh, officials for a loop. So the Roman officials take Paul to the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish council, okay, in Jerusalem. And this is where we pick up. He's going to talk to the Sanhedrin. He's going to be kind of uh, uh, brought up against these, these people who are accusing him. And we're going to see what happens here, okay? That's where we pick up. Now, what we talked about last week, kind of our theme, was this. How do we handle adversity? How do we handle those times in life when we come up against really big obstacles, right? Now, we're going to build on that a little bit this week, and we're going to talk about this question. In those times of adversity, and maybe even in those times when you are treated unfairly, you are innocent. You're not guilty, but you're being gossiped about or awful things are said about you, or, or maybe you're being untreated fairly at, at uh, your work or school or whatever the case may be. In those times, do we trust God? Do we take it upon ourselves to fix the situation, or do we trust that God is going to work those things out? That's what we're going to talk about a little bit today, okay? So you should have a notes handout in front of you. Um, has everything I'm going to talk about in there, everything on the screens will be in that note hands out, note handout. If you have the app, the Experience Community app, if you click on service time and sermon notes, everything's there. It's very, very handy. If you have a Bible, we're in the fifth book of the New Testament in the 23rd chapter. We'll go through it, we'll go through it all today, and we'll go through it pretty quick. Okay? Everyone good? Right? Okay. Awesome. All right. I'm going to pray, and we will get into this, and um, you can call your moms and tell them how much you appreciate them, or take them out to lunch, or do something nice for them and um, enjoy the beautiful weather today, okay? Lord Jesus, God, we love you. Father, we thank you, Lord. On a very serious note, God, we thank you, Lord, for the women that are in our lives, um, both moms and, and maybe women who have not been able to be mothers because of different situations. We just thank you for the women in this room, God, and, and uh, the strong women you've put in our lives that help us, God, and, and strengthen us and encourage us, Lord. I thank you for my mother, God. I thank you for my wonderful wife, God and uh, the mother that she is to my two children. And Lord, we just pray blessings over everyone today, God. We pray that you bless every church in our community, every nonprofit in our community, and pray, God, that in, in some small way we honor you today by our study of the word. Lord, we love you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, here we go. I'm going to read a little bit, and I'll go back and break it down. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. The high priest, Ananias, ordered those who were standing next to him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> you are sitting there judging me according to the law, yet in violation of the law, are you ordering me to be struck? Those standing nearby said, do you dare revile God's high priest? 
I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest, replied Paul. For it is written, you must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So as Paul stands in front of the Sanhedrin, he starts off with a very formal address. Brothers, I feel like I've lived the best life I could possibly live up to this point. Now, the Sanhedrin knew exactly who Paul was. And so the high priest, Ananias, right after Paul says this, this must have really angered him that he's lived in good conscience, he has the men standing next to Paul hit him in the mouth, punch him in the mouth. Now, why would a high priest do that? Well, let's talk about this high priest for a second. This is an interesting character, this guy, Ananias. This guy was elected to be the high priest in 48 AD, held this position for 10 years, and he was an extremely famous high priest. Not because he was a godly good man, but because he was known for taking bribes and he was known for taking money out of the temple offerings. He was a bad guy. In fact, he was so hated by the Jewish people that a, that a group of Jewish rebels, these guerrillas, came by and assassinated him in 66 AD. So striking Paul on the mouth was against the law, but for a guy who was this corrupt, he didn't care. Punch Paul in the mouth, right, is what he said. Now, Paul's response to this, I mean, we just chuckled at it, right, was a little um, not what we would expect. It wasn't the way Jesus handled the Sanhedrin. Jesus was falsely accused and hit in the mouth many times, and it says in the gospel that he remained silent. Paul did not remain silent. He said, God is going to strike you down, you whitewashed wall. That means you hypocrite. God's going to strike you, you hypocrite, because you just struck me. Now, that's pretty strong. Now, we could look at this and say, well, he was justified. This is righteous anger, right? The guy is a hypocrite. He was breaking the law. Or this could possibly be a good man, Paul, losing his temper, losing his cool. Now, it's safe to say the answer is somewhere in the middle. It was righteous anger. It was the truth but maybe he shot his mouth off a little too fast. So when Paul realized this, because he didn't know this was the high priest, some people debate that, that maybe he did know, but he was making a point because the guy wasn't acting like a high priest. He said, well, I didn't know it was the high priest. Basically saying, sarcastically, he's not acting like a high priest. But let's assume he didn't know. He didn't know that that was the high priest. When he realized that he had chastised an authority figure, this is important, guys, he apologizes. He said, I am wrong about this. Now, a couple of things we learned from that, three different things. One is Paul was human. All the men in the room were like, yes, right? We can lose our cool every once in a while because we're human, right? So Paul lost his cool because he's a man and he makes mistakes. Now, here's the thing. He didn't make excuses for that because he made a mistake. The second thing we learn is Paul corrected his mistake. He said, I am sorry. I did not know that that was the authority figure. So he repented both to God and to the person that he had offended. The third thing we learn, and which is probably the hardest thing for us to learn, is though that authority figure was corrupt, Paul still respected the position. He still respected the authority position, even though he didn't agree with that authority position. But let's go back to something here for a second. Let's go back to righteous anger. 
The Bible says that we're to be slow to anger and then we're not to sin in anger. But I will be very straightforward with you. There are times when you guys should get mad at some things. There are injustices of the world. There is sin within the body of Christ and within the leadership of Christ. There is hypocrisy. These are things that should make the Christian mad. These are things that should upset us, and we should have a low tolerance for these things. Now, does that mean that we stoop to unchristlike means of addressing it? No, but we are to speak truth, and sometimes we have to speak the truth abruptly and strongly because some people need to hear it, and sometimes we have to be a little elevated for them to hear it. Now, we need to be careful with that but there is a time for righteous anger, okay? Next part. When Paul realized that one part of them were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, he cried out to the Sanhedrin, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I'm being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out amongst the Pharisees and Sadducees and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, there's no angels or spirit, but the Pharisees affirm all of that. The shouting grew loud, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party got up and argued vehemently, we find nothing evil about this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? When the dispute became violent, The commander feared that Paul might be torn apart by them and ordered the troops to go down to take him away and to bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, have courage for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. Okay, now let me tell you a little bit about the Sanhedrin. If you're new to this and you've never heard about the Sanhedrin, The Sanhedrin was very similar to our our political system in the United States now. What I mean by that is there were two different parties. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, similar to how we have Republicans and Democrats. Now, the party that was in control at this time were the Sadducees. Now, the big difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees is the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in angels or demons They didn't really believe in anything spiritually supernatural, okay? That was the Sadducees. The Pharisees, on the other hand, did believe in all that. So the reigning party at this time were the Sadducees, which Ananias was a part of, okay? Side note here, nowhere in the Bible does it ever record a Sadducee becoming a Christian. Many Pharisees became Christians, but no Sadducees that we know of became Christians. So here's what Paul did. Paul knew that they were a divided house, right? So he looked at him and he said, I am from a Pharisee lineage. I'm a Pharisee. My father was a Pharisee. My grandfather was a Pharisee. And so he says, I'm being judged right now unfairly because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. He believes in Jesus Christ. He believes in the supernatural. And what that did is it set off a bomb within the Sanhedrin. So the Pharisees that were present at that moment They thought it was a better idea to argue about the resurrection than it was to waste their time arguing about Paul. Not only that, Paul was one of them in a way, right? 
So the Pharisees were like, wow, this is kind of one of our ex-brothers right here. Like they wanted to stick up for him a little bit. So the minority Pharisee started saying, there's nothing wrong with Paul. Like, let's argue about this resurrection thing. Let's let Paul go. We don't see anything evil about this man. So because the Sanhedrin let their, their debate, it started to get violent. I mean, the Romans were like, they're going to rip Paul in half. I mean, it is getting violent. The Roman commander, Claudius, took Paul, removed him from the Sanhedrin. He was probably like, this was a bad idea, right? Took him back to the barracks. And that night, Paul has his fourth vision from Jesus. And in this vision, God encouraged him, basically saying, I'll paraphrase, he's like, Paul, you're not going to die in Jerusalem. Just like you've testified in Jerusalem, I'm going to make sure that you testify in Rome, the most powerful empire on planet earth. I'm going to make sure you can tell your story there as well. Let's get back to this internal debate, though, about the Sanhedrin. And I'm going to try to connect a dot between modern day Christianity and the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was known for fighting amongst themselves. Now, a lot of times the modern day church tends to look like the first century Sanhedrin. Typically churches in the body of Christ is known more for what we're against than we are for what we are for. And that's a problem. If we're going to be known for anything, I'd rather people know me for what I am for than what I am against. And I would rather people know that the body of Christ can put minor differences aside so we can focus on the major, which is the cross and salvation of people, those that are, uh, of those that are lost, right? But unfortunately, the modern day Christian church has made, has made minor issues, these huge explosive arguments, and we remain divided. Here's one that's really crazy, right? I have a lot of good Catholic friends. I, I, Guys, I'm not anti-Catholic. A lot of people are like, you know, they're very anti. I'm not anti-Catholic. There are good Catholics out there. Now, when Catholics take communion, they believe in what's called transubstantiation, that the body and blood literally becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ when they ingest it during communion. I also have a lot of good Anglican friends. In fact, Father Chris Finley over at St. Patrick's is a very good friend of mine. We eat lunch about once a month. The Anglicans believe in consubstantiation, that the body and blood, the, 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 the elements of communion, don't literally turn into Jesus when you ingest them, but the Holy Spirit is in that mix. This church believes in what's called the symbolic approach to communion, which means that we just believe it's bread and juice, but it's a reminder of the fact that God's body and blood was given for us, and we take it as a remembrance of what has happened, right? Now, whether you believe in transubstantiation, consubstantiation, or a symbolic approach to communion, who cares as long as Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? Amen. And so sometimes we take minor issues, we blow them up, it divides people, we fight over this. Non-believers stand on the outskirts and say, man, they can't even get along with each other. Why would I want to be in the middle of that? So we need to be extremely careful that we let the minors be minors and we let the majors be majors, okay? All right. Long part here, so I'm going to take a drink of water. When it was morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who had formed this plot. These men went to the chief priests and to the elders 
And they said, we have bound ourselves under a solemn curse that we won't eat anything until we have killed Paul. So now, you, along with the Sanhedrin, make a request to the commander that he bring Paul down to you as if you're going to investigate his case more thoroughly. But before he gets near, we are ready to kill him. These are the religious folks, right? But the son of Paul's sister, hearing about their ambush, came and entered the barracks and reported it to Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this man to the commander because he has something to report to him. So he took him, brought him to the commander and said, the prisoner Paul called me to, ask this, uh, called me to, to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand, led him aside and inquired privately, what do you have to report to me? The Jews, he said, have agreed to, to ask you to bring Paul down to the Sanhedrin tomorrow as though they're going to hold a somewhat more carefully inquiry about him. Don't let them persuade you because there are more than 40 of them lying in ambush, men who have bound themselves not to eat or drink until Paul has been killed. Now they are ready waiting for your consent. So the commander dismissed the young man and instructed him, don't tell anyone that you have informed me about this. So these radical Jews, it's not all the Jews in Jerusalem that are against Paul, but this very radical group, possibly from modern-day Turkey where Paul had visited before, and they happened to be in town for the festival of Pentecost, typically these very radical Jews, they vowed not to eat or drink until Paul has been killed. They go to the chief priests, they go to the elders, and together they even involve the Sanhedrin in a conspiracy in a plot. Now, here's what we see. Religious fanaticism, religion over relationship often leads to us hating people. And if we hate people, Jesus said that's the same as murder in our hearts, but it may not just be a figurative murder. Hatred may lead us to literal murder. And so we see this progression in this story. So here's the other thing. These religious Jews were willing to not only break their own laws because they hated Paul so much, they were willing to face the wrath of Rome. So not only are we going to break one of our own Ten Commandments, we're going to face the wrath of Rome because Paul is a Roman citizen and they're not allowed to touch him. But it's amazing. When we have hatred and bitterness in our hearts, guys, this is important for any of you who are struggling with hatred or bitterness towards someone, if we don't let God eradicate that hatred and that bitterness, there is no telling what we can do. We can do awful things. We will think irrationally when we have this bitterness and hatred in us. So we have to let God take that from us. So here's what's interesting. This young man, it says, the son of Paul's sister. We know nothing about Paul's family virtually from the Bible. We know very, very little. But here comes this nephew, right? And this nephew comes in and he says, hey, Paul, I'm your nephew. By the way, 40 men have a plot to kill you, right? And so Paul's like, we should let the centurions know about this. So he sends the boy to the centurions, the Roman, the, the Roman commanders. He tells them this story. Now we have to ask ourselves, why would they listen to this boy? What, you know, why would this boy have any kind of uh, credence with them at all or any kind of a voice with them? The reason why is the Roman officials have already seen how maniacal 
the Jewish council could be. They've almost ripped Paul to shreds on multiple accounts. So the, the, the Roman officials are like, we've seen how crazy those Jewish leaders can get. So we're going to listen to this boy and we're going to get him out of town. And they're going to take him on to Caesarea. And then a couple of years later, I'm, I'm jumping ahead of myself, he's eventually going to make his way to Rome. Okay? Next part, last part. So he summoned two of the centurions and he said, get 200 soldiers ready with 70 cavalry and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. He wrote the following letter. Claudius wrote this letter. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor, Felix. Greetings. When this man, he's talking about Paul, when this man had, had been seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, I arrived with my troops and rescued him because I learned that he was a Roman citizen. Wanting to know the charge they were accusing him of, I brought him down before the Sanhedrin. I found that the accusations were concerning questions of their law, and there was no charge that merited death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there was a plot against this man, I sent him to you right away. I also ordered his accusers to state their case against him in your presence. So the soldiers took Paul during the night, brought him to uh, uh, Antipatris as they were ordered, and the next day they returned to the barracks, allowing the cavalry to go with him. When these men entered Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. After he read it, the letter, he asked what province Paul was from. When he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I'll give you a hearing whenever your accusers get here. And he ordered that he be kept under guard in Herod's palace. So at 9 p.m., look at this. At 9 p.m., they had 470 armed Roman soldiers escort Paul out of town. So Claudius not only took the threat seriously, he said, we're just not going to deal with it, right? I'm not going to take any more chances with this Jewish mob. So here's the thing. Paul knew that he was going to go to Rome. He probably never imagined he was going to go to Rome like this. Not only was he going to make it to Rome safely eventually, he was going to have this huge Roman armed security around him making sure that he got to his destination okay. So Luke records a letter. The letter was written from Claudius to the governor Felix. Now, Governor Felix was an interesting guy, another interesting character in this story. He was a man that was once upon a time a slave who was freed, worked his way up to a Roman governor, which is a pretty big deal, but he was known for his extreme violence, right? Similar to how Jesus was in front of Pontius Pilate, Pilate was known for his extreme violence. There was actually a Roman historian named Tacitus who said about Felix, he said that he was a master of cruelty and lust. This was a bad man, and this is who Paul is about to stand in front of and have to give an account to. So they traveled about 60 plus miles to Caesarea to meet Felix, who had jurisdiction over that greater area. So what's interesting is this. It was very clear that Paul hadn't broken any laws. He hadn't done anything worth being imprisoned, let alone anything worth being executed for. But here's the thing. Paul, being an innocent man, not just from his own testimony, but
But even Claudius said, he's an innocent man. Even the Pharisees said, he's an innocent man. And here Paul stands in front of a Roman governor having to give an account for what he's done, and he's about to face his accusers who have falsely accused him, who have beaten him, who have spoken poorly about him. And so here he is, right? So here's what's interesting about that. Paul is in a situation to where he is being completely mistreated, completely unfair. Now we learn from this, and we, if we apply this to our own lives, every single one of you in this room, I doubt you'll be taken in front of a Roman official, right? But every single one of you in this room will have to stand up in front of someone or a body of people or a boss or some kind of situation, and you will have to give an account even though you are 100% innocent. Every single one of you will be mistreated, either at your work or your school or some kind of situation, maybe even in a church or in a family situation. This is life, times of mistreatment. The question isn't if this will happen to you. The question is when it does happen to you, how will you act? How will you respond? Now let me give you some grace on this. You're not always gonna handle it well. You're not always gonna do it well. All the men are like, whew, all right, good, right? We're not always gonna handle times of adversity well. Here's the thing though, when we don't handle times of adversity well, It's simple. We need to ask God to forgive us, and not just that. That's the easy part, right? God, please forgive me. Whew, good. The hard part is then going to the person that you maybe didn't respond to well, even though they may be awful, right? They may be corrupt. They may be wrong. They may be liars. But if you are being what God wants you to be, not only do we ask for God's forgiveness when we respond poorly, we have to go to that individual and we have to to ask for their forgiveness as well. And that honors God. That's difficult. Let me tell you a fun story. <laughs> it just, it kind of relates. You guys can laugh at it. Just tell you the darkness of my heart, right? This one time, my wife and I were eating at the Parthenon. Not because we can really afford to eat at the Parthenon. I think we had a gift card. Someone bought us a gift card, right? So we're eating at the Parthenon, you know, for free. And you have no reason to complain about your dinner when you didn't pay for it, right? So, but I'm sitting there eating, you know, I just ate a steak and my wife ate her food. And I drank my water and it had like sat empty for for. I don't know, quite a, it seemed like quite a long time, right? And so here's, here's where Corey goes when I feel like I've been mistreated. I don't raise my voice. I don't get mad. I'm not a, I'm not a, a violent person. I don't shove people or anything. I'm not like that. I'm not like, like violent anyway. I go into sarcasm land. That's where I go, right? So when I feel like I've been treated unfairly, I get very, very sarcastic. My words get very sharp and I'm, I'm just kind of a jerk, right? So our waitress, who I didn't feel like had come by for quite some time, and I'm sitting there with no water, you know, and uh, she eventually came by, and I was like, hey, do you guys still have water at this restaurant? Because if you do, I mean, I'd love to have some. I mean, if you, know, if you guys can spare it, you know, and I was being a real jerk, right? And this poor girl, <laughs> this poor girl goes, oh my gosh, I am so sorry. We've been so slammed. And she grabs my water and she goes, oh, and by the way, pastor, great sermon last Sunday. <laughs> Yeah, right? And that's when my wife, like, she started to, like, slump down and wanted to, like, slide under the table, right? Long story short, right when she walked away, I'm like, 
Here we go, all right? So I think I left her a $30 tip and I told her how sorry I was and you know, like, I'm just, I'm so sorry and I, that's not the way I should act. And she was so kind and so nice. And she goes, you know what? It was my mistake for not filling up. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I was the one who was wrong here, right? But what I, what I learned in this situation is even though I didn't get great service that night, right? I mistreated is a very strong word for this situation. But what I found was, is even though I didn't respond well, when I humbled myself, or God kind of humbled me in that situation, didn't he? But when I humbled myself and said, I was wrong, not only was she responsive to that, and she goes, you know what, we all say things we shouldn't say, or you know, we all react poorly, and, and not only did, did, was she kind about it, we built a relationship, right? It, it, it restored something, it, it made it even better, right? It was, it was good, and I have tons of stories like that. But what we learn is we're not always going to respond well, but if we will be humble and ask for God's forgiveness and others' forgiveness, we right our wrongs. And that takes a ton of humility. We also know this, guys, that we learned from today. There are times, and we have to be very careful with this, there are times when it's okay to be mad. There is a righteous anger. You know, in the last hundred years, I guess one of the best examples in the United States was the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. There was a time when it was completely justified that people looked at a situation and say, it makes me angry that that diner will not serve African-Americans or that African-Americans can't go to the same school that our children go to. There was a time when sit-ins were okay. Protests were needed. It was a pastor that led the civil rights movement. A great Christian man, Martin Luther King Jr., named after Martin Luther, the head of the Reformation. I mean, there was a, there was a time when these things were okay. There is a time for righteous anger. But we need to be careful, Christians, that we respect authority even when that authority is not everything that we want it to be. Even when it's a, a party we didn't vote for or a man or woman that we didn't support. God has put those people there, Romans 13, and as Christians, we are to honor the governing authorities, right? The next thing is this. In times of being mistreated, you must not let bitterness and hatred take root in your heart. As Christians, there is no place in our heart for bitterness and hatred, and if we feel that, we have to deal with that. Even if that person that has mistreated you has never apologized, even if they're never going to apologize, we've got to get that bitterness, we've got to get that root, uh, that, that root of hatred out of us or it will destroy us. Now, the last thing is this. The most important thing you need to know in times of mistreatment is you need to set back and remember that God is in control. God is sovereign over every situation. He knew your situation before you ever knew your situation. He knew your situation long before you were ever knit together in your mother's womb. God is in control. And if we will trust him, God will fight our battles for us. We don't have to go out and take vengeance and we don't have to go out and avenge our wrongs and do all these things. God will take care of those things if we can sit back and trust him and communicate with him and be humble and say, God, I'm gonna give this to you. Now that is difficult because in times of mistreatment, our first impulse is to take it upon ourselves to get back, right? Amen. To take it upon ourselves to say something 
or to do something or to make sure that person gets fired or to make sure that everyone knows that that person is awful, right? And that is not the way that Jesus wants us to handle it. Let him handle it. Somewhere in the Bible, I think it says that vengeance is mine, says the Lord, right? So we need to let those situations be his. So the question is this. It's not if it's going to happen, but when you are treated unfairly, in those times are you going to set back and trust that the Lord is going to give you the wisdom, the courage, and that he is going to fight those battles for you? Do we trust him like that? Would you guys bow your heads with me? Listen, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I don't know where you're at today. I don't know if you're going through some garbage right now. I don't know if some people have wronged you. I don't know if you're being falsely accused. I don't, I don't know if there's just maybe that woman at work or that man in the office or that just, just makes your life a living hell. I don't, I don't know if you're going through something like that. But instead of taking that situation into your hands, because you're just going to screw it up, guys. Instead of you trying to get retribution, instead of you trying to get back at people, why don't you pray for that individual? Why don't you pray that God works it out? Why don't you pray that God gives you the wisdom to address that situation in the way that he wants you to address it? Trust him during these times. Listen, there's people up here at the front if you need prayer for anything. If you're going through some adversity, let some men and women up here at the front pray with you. There's also communion all the way around you, and everyone is welcome to take it, whether you believe in transubstantiation, consubstantiation, or symbolism, right? Everyone is welcome to take the communion, as long as you ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins. When you take the communion today, remember that God is on your side. Jesus loves you, he wants what's best for you, and he wants to fight for you. He wants to be your advocate. Lord Jesus, God, I pray that you encourage us today, strengthen us today, give us wisdom and love today. God, we thank you again for all the moms in the room, for all the women in the room, God. We thank you, Lord Jesus, God, that you direct our steps and that you strengthen us and encourage us. Lord, give us wisdom in times of trouble. Lord, give us trust in times when we need you. Strengthen us, Lord. We love you and we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope you guys have a wonderful day. You're welcome to help yourself to prayer and communion. Thank you, guys.